Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hi, you're listening to the Wall Street Oasis podcast, a podcast about breaking into the world of finance, along with interviews with those who have. I'm Alex Grodnick, and on today's show, I am joined by Professor of Entrepreneurism, Eddie Winehouse, who I call Coach. Before we get into this one, let me take a second to plug the product. Wall Street Oasis has an investment banking guide like nothing else out there. When I was trying to break into investment banking, I was looking for any edge I could get. This was when I first discovered Wall Street Oasis. Their guides were far and away better than anything I had seen and played a huge part in helping me get the job. They're so confident that it will help you succeed that if you buy it and for whatever reason you don't like it, they'll give you your money back. So go on to wallstreetoasis.com, click IB Interview Guide, and when you buy it, make sure you select Podcast is where you heard about it. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Okay, Coach, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Let me give an actual introduction here. Coach, you are one of the more interesting guys I've met in business school. You teach a class called Business Plan Development. You're really involved in so many different ventures. You teach entrepreneurism both here at Anderson and at Wash U. You're the chairman of the Coin Group, a Bitcoin investment company. You run a consulting firm. You're a professor, but you're also currently in law school. You have an MBA from Booth, and you went to undergrad at London School of Economics. So just kick us off. How did you get here? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, yeah, I've worked in the startup world since, well, gosh, I mean, we won't go back to uh, high school because uh, I had some traditional jobs uh, in between. I've been working uh, almost nonstop in the startup world since 1999. Uh, I did take a very brief uh, respite and worked for a big company. Uh, I worked for Boston Consulting Group briefly and American Electric Power. Uh, but since then, all I've been doing is taking all the education experiences I've had and add them to the next venture I've tried to do. I'm always trying to build something new, try something different. I get excited about it. I'm probably sure you've seen it in class, just sort of talking about your guys' plans, uh, whether the, the particular team you're working on or the other three teams in class. I get really, really excited about building new stuff. You know, one of the iron laws we talk about in class is man was born to create, and I just love seeing people create new things. I, I just get totally excited about it. I became, I, I got to UCLA because I had originally been teaching at Washington University and uh, an intro class for uh, undergrads, and I'd been coaching business plan teams in their MBA class. It's a little bit of a hybrid between what we're doing in business plan development 
and BCO, which is an option that's very unique to uh, UCLA. So the, the class at Washington University is a hatchery. I've loved doing it. And when I um, started deciding I wanted to be uh, out on the West Coast a little bit more to find other opportunities to create value, UCLA is one of the schools I wanted to talk to, and they had an opening to be able to help teams. And it was just a perfect fit for everything I'd been doing at WashU, a little bit less so at University of Chicago, where my, which is my alma mater. Right. And so have you always had this entrepreneur bug? Were you like the kid with the lemonade stands like I was growing up? and Or was it something something later? Um, I, you were probably better at it than I was. Uh, I think the first business I started was uh, responding to an advertisement uh, in the newspaper for stuffing envelopes for $30 an hour, which was a pyramid scheme. Uh, apparently, if you place an ad in a newspaper, people would send you envelopes to stuff to tell them to place ads in a newspaper. Uh, <laughs> I, I failed at that. Sounds like a Ponzi scheme. I, had, I, I failed at that business. Uh, I believe I was in junior high. The next business I had was with my older brother and a guy named Brad Stevenson, I think, who also ended up at a Boston consulting group. And we had a local car wash business. It, it didn't go particularly well. We learned the moral hazard of fixed pricing. So people would bring us cars that were almost uncleanable at a traditional place, but we were priced in such a way that we would take any car. And so our hourly rates dropped to well below uh, minimum wage. <laughs> so I learned a very important things about pricing and, and having good customers. After that, I think mostly I was v pretty lost in my career after uh, undergrad. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I became a derivatives trader, briefly Chicago, mostly uh, Singapore, Zurich, and London. Okay. So, And how long did you do that for? Uh, four years. Uh, so but you were like a math major undergrad. I had a math major at Miami of Ohio, and then I transferred to the London School of Economics, where I got a degree in economics. Um, so I did my I, my degree, my undergraduate degree, is from the London School of Economics. Okay. I just was always pursuing what can I do next, and uh, I really wasn't really thinking through like what can I create. That didn't happen until I was on a trading desk and uh, that hadn't been formed yet. We were helping build it within a German bank. Mm -hmm. So um, entrepreneurship is probably the opposite of creating a trading desk within a German bank. It was almost like living with a completely regulated world. So it was very challenging to get a lot of things done. But eventually we got our trading desk off the ground and uh, I realized I love that part more than I like the trading. So I, I have clients now in my consulting practice who are traders, and I'm, I'm helpful to them because I understand their business. But it was the creation of new things that I realized I liked most, which is ultimately why I went back to business school. Right. So you did trading for a few years, saw this entrepreneurship angle, and then said, okay, I'm going to go to business school and see how I can explore this? Yeah. I mean, I didn't call it entrepreneurship. I remember as I resigned from a, a bank that no longer exists, uh, West Deutsche Landesbank, uh, mm -hmm. West LB. I remember telling my boss there, like, I wanted to be involved in... In equities in the trading world you know I was in foreign exchange and metals and then there were equities uh, but I wanted to be involved in like a company or building something and right. I I didn't really have entrepreneurship it wasn't until I got to University of Chicago and they had an entrepreneurship focus and the Polsky Center Professor Kaplan Haypack and Schrager and there's these great professors in Chicago that I was able to learn with that I switched from having this deep finance focus with Professor Fama uh, over to the entrepreneurship focus so that's really where I like even got the you know thought that, oh, it's entrepreneurship I'm actually interested in. Right. And that's opposite of what I would have thought. I mean, you are involved in so many different businesses and ideas, and it just seems like you've had this bug forever. And so after business school, then what happened? You know, the per our personal lives get involved in our business lives to some degree. Uh, I, I had worked at Boston Consulting Group in my summer. I was offered a full-time position there, but I couldn't take it. I just... 
I couldn't, the thought of why anyone would listen to me, having had been a trader, not really having done anything, it, the imposter syndrome we get. And trust me, as lecturers or professors, we're all imposters to some degree, and our egos are all played into. But at that age and maturity level, I simply couldn't understand why I would have that job with such a great organization, and I wasn't willing to take it. I was getting married at the same time, uh, and my uh, now ex-wife insisted that I go get a normal job. So I went and worked. I moved from Chicago to Columbus, Ohio, and I worked for American Electric Power on the trading desk. And I quickly became uh, the right-hand man to a guy who had risen to the VP level. I started working there in early 2002, so this is just after Enron really was imploding. Mm -hmm. And uh, the capital all dried up in November 2002 in the uh, energy trading market. I, you know, for sure thought I was just going to get fired because it was part of one of these big associate programs where they, you know, get rid of, you know, two-thirds of the people anyway. I ended up getting promoted through the process, and in that, you know, I realized, okay, I could keep going up through the corporate ladder. Uh, or my like main guy, who I was a right-hand man to, he wanted to start his own business, and he wanted me to start it with him. And he saw I was able to get things done and maneuver around the situations to succeed in the corporate environment, so much so that he was pretty sure I'd be very helpful in the out in the real world, too, as he started creating a business. And we started a business together. He said he wanted to move to Houston, so I picked my family up and uh, you know, with, with family support and moved to Houston and started a real estate company. We had a very unique approach to real estate in those days, as uh, people here in California will know. It was crazy as far as the level of appreciation. Where we moved to, it wasn't like that. Uh, we, we chose a different market purposefully. So then from there, if you Google you, what comes up is this company, Block Shopper. Right. So Google, I say, uh, and when I meet people now, like Google loves to hate me. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of love for you. Yeah. No, I, so I, you know, I'm very happy with Google because, you know, Google's really good about spelling my name right. But I care about most. So I was in the real estate market uh, till in Houston. Um, some family pressures. Really, most importantly, my partner and I saw that the real estate market was, was really going to die. Um, I was selling houses in, um, you know, lower income markets, you know, $100,000 houses and below that we were either building or developing. And I saw uh, the capital for lending drying up. And mm -hmm. I, you know, that that was my, all my income was based on that. You know, we did a deal where I sold my interest to him. I thought it was a terrible deal for me at the time, but I really needed to sell uh, so I could move my family uh, to St. Louis. It was a way worse deal for him, but we only found that out a month or two later. <laughs> so, That's a pretty fast realization. Yeah, now, you know, he's smarter than me, so he was wise that the market was going down. So it was already depressed, mm -hmm. but we had to get a deal done so we didn't destroy value in the business. And we, uh, we still have a relationship to this day. It was a good deal, ultimately, given the risks of the time. And he, he's done quite well with it, but it's, he's done well with it because of what he did after, not because of the deal. Not the deal he signed at the time. Right. I now had enough money to figure out what my next move was going to be. And an old uh, partner of mine in a previous startup that I uh, worked in at business school, and you know we'd been friends even by that time, 10, 12 years, uh, had asked me based on my real estate expertise, uh, and I'd started a real estate investment news service in Houston called Houston Real News, that uh, he wanted to start a public record gathering site for real estate, for passive uh, real estate shoppers. Uh, he wanted to call it Block Shopper. I uh, founded the company. We were 50-50 partners. I was the main, I really ran it though. He was part-time, he was working for the US Chamber of Commerce as their like main news guy doing public records and fighting tort law in Madison County and some other places around the country um, and working with attorneys general. So I was the real estate expert and I gathered all the news and it caused a big brouhaha. It was the same time Zillow was coming out, same time uh, Redfin, Trulia, there were all these other real estate plays, but we were just focused on, I know this is gonna sound terrible to everyone and I'm, I wanna apologize, I'm publishing public 
information. So if you complained to us, you had to write your letter to the publishing public information department. <laughs> so right. what we did is we put people's names with their real estate transactions, which is public record. And what we had a really hard time dealing with in the market, why people say bad things is people didn't know that there was a public service to doing that. It was already done. It wasn't us. We just published it. We made it findable by Google. Right. Which everyone does now, by the way. So... Like the, the complaints you read are, are, they show up high because they're old, but they're dated. You know, we can get into at some point why it's very important that names go with the properties. Like that's a public service that everyone should want that, not the opposite. Mm -hmm. And why, for example, California law tries to destroy the whole purpose of it, uh, even though, you know, it's, it's clearly a, a public service to, to do that. So you say, you know, Chicago lawyer buys $2 million mm -hmm. apartment. And yeah, that's what, that's what upset people. It's like you connected a bunch of things that already existed, but you were, the, you were the face of it. Right. So what I really did was I built a process for gathering news much less expensively, which ultimately is what got us uh, invested in things like that. So I broke the, I disaggregated the process of news creation. Uh, news creation was very much, you know, reporters and business people are separated a lot of news organizations based on uh, an old concept of uh, bias and, uh, you know, Chinese wall, like you're a, a trading firm, but to keep the business people out from telling the news people what to write. So reporters have this, you know, we're are all trained around this, this art, uh, but creating news is really a process, like building a car right. uh, in some respects, when it's based, when it's a particular kind of news. And we built, I built really one of the most efficient systems for process-driven news organically. So I started with taking apart the pieces and separating it out, so specialization. Then I started with finding you know, the, the right kind of labor for each specialization and then automating as many processes as I could. We've gotten a lot of uh, heat for that later. My partner ended up being the public face of that uh, in an NPR story in 2012 about how your news is being produced in the Philippines, mm -hmm. um, which wasn't exactly accurate. The people that worked in the Philippines for us were you know, my hires, and I still have people in my consulting company who helped me out who live in the Philippines and work with me for... I mean, they're almost like family. Right. You know, we've had drama. You know, there's been cheating and stealing and lying, and yet we still all work together. Yeah, <laughs> it's business. So wrap this business up. You raised a bunch of money. You own half of it. What happened to it? Uh, it still exists. It's actually a matter of pending litigation. What happened to it? The last like press releases about the business beyond this NPR. You know, your news is being created in the Philippines in 2012. Was a Tribune in April 2012 invested seven million dollars or so in the business. They signed an agreement to hire services, hire the company for services. In this conflict I was talking about between the business and the editorial side at the Tribune played out in public, and it played out over us. Uh, so at the time we were called Jurnatic, Block Shepherd changed into doing more than just real estate. The news side who had who was responsible for hiring our company wasn't so interested in using the services of the same company that the corporate side had invested in. So they, you know, some public issue and they stopped using us. It more or less destroyed a lot of value in the business. It was no longer a place where there was a huge opportunity for growth. I've decided to go create growth in other places and actually just as a testament to what I do, have helped another company raise $15 million from, from the Tribune or so in the last year, even though, you know, the Tribune is well aware I've had pending litigation <laughs> against that. <laughs> for the last few years. So to show you, like, there is still value to create and people, you ultimately get past these sorts of business issues. Uh, I've, so I've gone on and done a lot of other things and the company has muddled along and has been involved in, with my old partner, has involved in uh, controversy after controversy. They just got wrapped up in some Illinois election commission thing. Th things I'm not involved in. I'm a, I'm a very small shareholder now. Right. 
<laughs> so now you're involved. You have this consulting firm. You're the chairman of this Bitcoin uh, cryptocurrency blockchain company. Mm-hmm. You're a lecturer here. You teach at uh, Washington University. So what's at the core of you? Like how does how are you able to do all these things? Are you the idea guy? Are you just awesome at operations? Are you are you just great at raising capital? Like uh, all of those things. How, no. how is it that how is it that you do this? You know, I think you 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 forgot to mention that I'm a full time law school student. Right. <laughs> So yeah, we, so I do the things that? I do the things I love. Why? Okay, so you do the things you love. And I you do want, the things I love, and, and you when you do the a law thi- degree would be, I you know a law degree. If if you if you were gonna get uh, if you were gonna get an education, something um, that would help you in business uh, through issues that you don't really talk that much about in business, other than how to avoid them, mm-hmm. right? These are the problems that find you no matter what when you're in business. I've I've experienced in my personal life. I experienced in my business life. I see all my clients go through these issues all the time. And when we go to business school, we just learn how to avoid them. But when you can't, you spend five to $800 an hour <laughs> to not avoid them. And I personally don't believe that, that being without this experience is, makes me as a whole of a, a professor here, even a father to my children, as a, um, you know, as a consultant, without totally understanding like the access to this world that can literally come in and invade your life and take everything you have without you really understanding what you did to get there. Right. So I, it's very important to me. It's almost like this whole bed of knowledge that needs to be there. Now, uh, my father's a plaintiff attorney, has argued a case in front of the Supreme Court, which I got to see. So I have some background in like understanding that this world exists. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wanted to go. I wanted to go during business school. I just, it was enough school for me at the time. And now I go because... I just love it. You might be the only professor that is also a student. Right. It's one of the things I do love. It's one of the things I do love about being, you know, being able to work with students is I'm also a student. Right. Right. So and my professors, I think, uh, in, in law school also love that I'm also a professor and I'm in their class. So I, I feel like I get to bridge a lot of worlds. So as far as all the different things I do, it really comes down to not only do I do the things I love, I'm only around people I love. I think when you get out of business school and you realize like who does what like you'll have people who will work for you when they can make a lot more money somewhere else but they actually like you or they like the people they work with and you can't trade that for anything so i'm a consultant because i like to help people i only like take on clients that i like to help though right so now i mean i could fill my days 18 hours a day just helping people i like and what's more fulfilling than that so sure. that's what it is. So I think the listeners of this podcast are people that are aspiring MBAs, trying to find a job that they can be passionate about. So what do you? What's what's the advice? Is it just find something that you love and work hard at that, and then success and prosperity will come? Or, or how do you how do you think they should go about that? It's hard. The, the way you say it, it's really interesting because success and prosperity will come. It depends how you define success and prosperity. Meaning. Well, so meaning, so the, I think the Talmud says he who uh, he is wealthy is he who is happy. So if success and prosperity is happiness, then do the things and be around the people you love. It's real simple. Right. Um, I define happiness uh, almost, you know, religiously as, you know, know you're doing the right thing. If you know you're doing the right thing, you'll be happy and no one can ever replace that with money. How much money can you pay someone to not be happy? And when... Once people have that full realization of what success and prosperity is, mm-hmm. you know, with the talent level of young kids getting into college and college kids going into the working world and MBAs, um, you know, getting out and finding what their real, real careers are, 
you know, the prosperity will come depending on their sort of level of work and their connections and their education and how they leverage that. But none of that money will ever replace their happiness. So I don't, I don't answer the question because it's not my number. My number one goal in life isn't to have an X amount of number dollar in my bank account or erase this many debts on my balance sheet is probably more relevant <laughs> five kids right. um, that's just not a factor in my happiness almost at all I mean other than other than when you know if you owe debt and people knock on the door it's sort of annoying okay but I mean the things I spend my money on and what I want are only as far as like building my my happiness which is what everything's really right. about. so is that where the teaching comes in is doing the right thing yeah, I think the teachings may be a little bit more personal than that. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I have a lot of children. My children live, uh, they don't live with me full time. I see them on holidays and vacations and, you know, I take them for long breaks and things like that. But I just have a lot more to give than I'm, because I don't live with my children full time, I'm not able to. And so it's like this, once you have that, like you feel like you're, you're, you're bottled up if you can't like go out and give to other people. And so I don't, I can't give as much as I would like to my children in terms of time and energy mm -hmm. and teaching is a great way to fulfill the need to help other people out that are just looking up to you that just want advice and thoughts and help. So no, you're not one of my kids. Uh, however, I do like the idea that maybe I could be helpful in your future career success, just like I would if you were one of my right. kids. I certainly appreciate that. And that's why we're doing this. And so it's fulfilling for you. The... Uh, extremely. And, and the part of it is ego. Mm -hmm. And a lot of you who start your own companies, it's, they're not all going to be successful. Like, you know, Black Shepherd Journatic for me was a great success in what I learned and what I took from it. Right. It wasn't I didn't get super rich from it. It's, you know, a mess of litigation and you know, this and the other of, of um, you know, bad reputations of people saying bad things on the Internet and NPR doing a show. You know, there's only so much you get out of it. So what what can I get out of it? That's great helping other people and so that that serves the ego it 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 takes what could be a total loss into a total win like i can i and i know i've talked to the class about this one of the things i talk about is you know teaching people like how to live forever so you know i think that's really important and i teach businesses one of the ways to succeed right is just always live don't die right well how do you do that find out where you're going to die, then don't go there. So if I can take some of the lessons in some of the, the businesses that have gone well and some of the businesses that have gone less well and share those with other people, that's a huge win for everybody. Right. And I think that's what my takeaway has been from, from your business plan development class that we're in together on, on Thursday nights is it's very practical and very actionable. I mean, you had, you bring all this awesome experience that you've had from your life and you translate it into 10 weeks of of class. And so I, I certainly really appreciate it. I think it's it's refreshing. It's much different from the approach that a lot of other professors have. I mean, you've basically said we're done reading the academic stuff. We're not going to read cases anymore. We're not going to be reading the textbooks. We're just going to have conversations about your business plans, about what you want to ask me. We have guest speakers and it's all uh, really meaningful. Yeah. So we started the first half with a lot of the academic stuff. And because we have a very unique class, it was a little challenging to get everyone on the same page. So when we did the midterm uh, surveys, everyone just wants their own business plan to be better. You guys are all, uh, everyone in the class is in this conditional approval stage for this awesome program at UCLA called the BCO. 
and you get to spend, you get your master's thesis on creating your own business. And they handed me a class of 17 people where I'm their one roadblock to getting into this awesome program because if they have to get a certain grade in my class or their plan has to be at a certain level. And so to put that in front and then ask people to read certain cases, and I love these cases, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about them offline. I'm happy to talk about them in class. I like the academic papers. Uh, so we did a lot of that, but people really just want this big obstacle out of their way. And the best thing I can do to help you guys is make sure your business plans are ready for BCO, that you're going to be successful in creating the businesses if you want to. And I think all effectively all assuming a certain couple of things get out of the way of one of the businesses could be legitimate live businesses with a chance to, you know, swing for the fences and make a lot of money. When the students say that that's what they want to focus on, then that's what we're going to work on. Right. So my, the question here is you have an interesting approach to teaching. Where did that come from? How did you develop that? Uh, being really bad at the other approach. <laughs> so I started with undergrads at WashU. Uh, and I talked about this a little bit last night. It's just a diff completely different student um, than an MBA with a real life, uh, with a real business plan who plans on going live. Everyone loves to hear the stories and they love, um, they love the practical experience. They love the speakers because they gain from them and they don't have to do that much work uh, to get that information. So I've just realized that this is what's, what students, how they're really taking the information in. And when I hand them the academic work, to gain from it, if their mind is focused on somewhere else, I'm wasting their time and their energy, and that's not why they're here. They're adults, they spend money. You know, they should actually get exactly what they're looking for out of the class. So I just, like any business, I'm finding what my customers want, and I'm giving it to them. Right. Um, and, hopefully, and hopefully they're getting what they need out of the class. Um, I do have an academic approach, so I, I wanna at least correct one thing. Like I have my own, like, through all of my years of like academic study of this, whether, uh, you know, whether the things I've picked up in communication from law school or whether from raising capital or my own, um, my own, you know, master's degree, you know, I have a very academic approach to how to build a business that can raise money and grow big. Mm -hmm. Um, I use my framework. Uh, it's used at like three universities now. It's, it works very well for, um, not only like how to communicate with others, but how to drive yourself into a position of where you're succeeding in your business and that's what helps you communicate with others. So um, it, it starts with some Harvard research on communication and committed language and we've talked a little bit about that in class. That once you've committed to saying something a certain way, you start doing things a certain way. When you start doing things a certain way, people realize that you're doing things a certain way and they want to they join with you. They're not, you're not trying to convince them of something, you're asking them to walk alongside you. Right. You have this aura that you have life so figured out. You have these iron laws. Like you don't talk to people who have iron laws of how businesses work and how life works. I mean, do, does it feel like that to you, that, that you had just have life figured out and you're going to go? <laughs> I don't think anyone who looked at my life externally would say, wow, that guy's got to figure it out. I want his life. All right. But okay, I so how do, you, how do you merge the two? It's, it's really about... The same thing, it's happiness and knowing you're doing the right thing. Right. So if I'm happy and I know I'm doing the right thing, I feel good about sharing it. I feel good about talking about it. I feel good about saying this is an iron law. Like this is what happens. I've seen it a million times. Like this is how we manage our, it's not just that it's an iron law. It's that if you understand it, then you can see decisions you make, how they relate to the iron laws and you're either falling into some trap you've seen other people do, which is why we read cases, mm -hmm. right? So we've gone through the, we went just to be clear, before we got rid of cases, we went through everything in 
single iron law as it pertained to one case, which everybody had already read, which is very important. It was a part of the academic exercise. You guys already know this case. You've all studied it, but we're doing it again, but with the iron laws. You guys at least have some frame of reference later academically so you could go back and pull them out later in life. You said, ah, that was like this, and I, I remember. So when you have those sort of frames of reference, when you read things in context of a worldview or through your life experience, my worldview changes on occasion. It changed a lot after um, getting married, after having children, after going through a divorce, after, you know, like you gain so much in your life experience, but if you always take it into, listen, I know I'm doing the right thing, mm -hmm. right? So I'm happy. It only, when you're not happy, it's probably because you're not doing the right thing and you, or you don't, or the other problem is you don't know the right thing. So that's a big problem. When you don't know the right thing, people get really tense and uneasy and they have anxiety and things like that. Sometimes it's just easier to just, this is right and I know it and I'm going to do that. You know, you got, you, you know, MBAs for sure, you're going to get job offers and you're going to commit to them and then you're going to get other job offers. And there will be a decision of writing. And I'm not here to judge moral right versus not right. But when you're in that process of not knowing which one, you're not happy. No, choices are, don't make humans happy. Right. You are not, but when you know which right one, and then you do it, knowing you are doing the right thing, all of a sudden you're happy. Right. Right? So it doesn't mean you did the right thing. You just know you did the right thing. You think you did the right thing. Well, uh, so there's the, you know, the ability, there's a, a book called The Folly of Fools, right? Like it's about how we convince ourselves of the truth when mm -hmm. something's false. So, so yes, the ability to fool yourself uh, into uh, knowing truth when it's not is very helpful. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's evolutionary to, to mankind's existence. So. Do you have any other books that you base your life, you recommend? Yeah, for uh, people getting married, uh, this is a religious Jewish book. Uh, I don't know all the words in it. I don't understand because it's that religious. Yeah. But if you want to be a good husband, I have a book for that. Uh, you can't let your wife read it. There's one for her to read if she wants to, to how to be a good wife. But uh, it's life-changing, and I give it to any of my clients, religious, Jewish, Christian, secular, otherwise, that this will change as an actual way to actually think of what marriage really is. It will be the largest business decision you ever make in your life. The marriage, yeah. <laughs> and so what's, what's the book called? Uh, it's called Garden of Peace by Arush, A-R-U-S-H. And again, this is not, uh, I've given it to Christian clients. Given it, there was words in there that even you know, knowledgeable Jewish people won't understand. But it's, it's conceptually, it's about what this business decision is that you're making. It's very much not one. But it's so life-altering that if you don't pursue it the right way, mm -hmm. you're sort of stuck in this like bizarre business deal where not everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing and the contract terms aren't clear. And when you get in business contract and terms aren't clear, there's no good contract. Like things can go badly. And so you, you badly. didn't read this book before your marriage. I didn't know about the book before I got married. Uh, I did read it while I got married at my, um, someone's suggestion related to my wife and she was going to read her version of the book. And let's just say I'm a better reader. <laughs> <laughs> It, it was, a, I'll tell you this, it was the happiest time of my marriage when I knew what I was supposed to be doing. Because again, happiness is knowing you're doing the right thing. Right. And it's very hard to be happy in a business relationship or your company if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. So you, so had, you had your end covered. As best I could. I mean, I have, you know, I don't, especially when it gets to family relationships, I certainly don't want to badmouth anyone. Millions of problems I have on my end. Mm -hmm. At least I knew I was doing the right thing as best I could. Yeah. So. And on your bio, I think it's on the WashU website, it says you can say the alphabet backwards. I can sing it forwards. and Yeah, it's called the circular ABCs. Yeah, Is well, that something you want to hear? I, how do you do it backwards? You've, so you've memorized it backwards. That's how you can do it? Well, it's a song, yeah. Oh, it's a song. But I, no, but I can do it backwards, I think. 
ZYXWVUTSRQPOMOKJHEFVDCBA. Now I know my ZYXs. So it's the same Next way. time, won't you punch me in the solar plexus? <laughs> oh, yes, that's the. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you, <laughs> you memorize it. Um, uh, you know, I will tell one story. So, I hired, uh, you know, I, I asked this question when I hired someone, like, who's your favorite movie character and why? Mm-hmm. And I wanted someone to be my director of HR to do our hiring for us. And we were going from 25 people to 400 people in a matter of like six months. It's a lot of hiring. Yeah. So I hired someone and I asked him who his favorite movie, I asked him that his favorite movie character of all time was Kaiser Sose from Usual Suspects. And he, uh, you know, was there and he did a great job in the job. It was exactly what I was looking for. And so I you know, made some bet in the office. I bet everyone launched it. Anyone could do, you know, recite the ABCs backwards faster than me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they were like, oh, well, you know, they all practice. He was like, well, I can do it. He didn't even practice. And so we went and had a competition and he beat me. And uh, he's like, oh, no, I've, been memor- I've memorized that since I was a little kid, right? So he, w- he was ready. He was, you know, I hired him for a specific position because he said his favorite movie character was Kaiser Sose, and then he showed me why. Right. By beating me in public. Everyone got lunch. <laughs> so what's your favorite movie character? That's an easy one. Uh, Coach Brooks from the movie Miracle. You know, as a, a nearly eight-year-old child, I got to watch... I think it was a Friday afternoon or Friday night on tape delay, the U.S. beating the Soviet Union. I got mm-hmm. to watch the game on Sunday against Finland when they were down one nothing for the gold, the actual gold medal game, uh, which they cover over in the movie. So I'm, I was very attached to the story, right. just emotionally as a kid. Like it was a huge, again, a huge deal. Like mm-hmm. that, unless you lived at that time, you wouldn't really understand how bad we thought of the Soviet Union. I mean, we thought, I mean, it was the evil empire. Reagan called the evil empire, but we knew that to be true before he turned it that. And to, that our college kids beat their professionals was just this massive, like it like gave us faith in America again. And the movie sort of hit that point. Right. Um, and it's it's just a, it's a great film. There's a lot of uh, lessons, you know, that I, my kids can recite. If, if, if I were to have iron laws, my kids wouldn't come to me. They would go to Coach Brooks. You know, and they would start reciting the lines. This cannot be a team of common men because common men go nowhere. You have to be uncommon. So that's you know that that for me, you know, you know, my kids and decide they never want to talk to me again for this set or the other reason. Fine, just go watch Miracle. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> so parenting advice <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. I'll definitely get it out there, and we'll see if people listen to it. Besides, besides my mom and wife. Well, I can assure you that my mom will listen also. Okay, great. So we got we got we got two Jew, two Jewish moms as the audience. Advertisers start start lining up. That's great. All right. Well, I appreciate you having me here. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for being on. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right. Great. Thanks a lot, Alex. I'm Alex Grodnick, and you've been listening to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. We have much more coming, so please stay with us.